2020 marks the 50th birthday of Griffin Theatre Company's home, the SBW Stables Theatre. I'm Angela Caterns. Join us as we celebrate the anniversary in this special series of podcasts in which we hear about the theatre's history and talk to some of the country's most celebrated artists. The SBW Stables Theatre has been the home of the Griffin Theatre Company since 1979. But it wasn't always known as the Stables Theatre, and it wasn't always a secure home for the fledgling theatre company. Developers were circling the venue, which sits on prime real estate in King's Cross, Sydney. The first time it was under threat in 1975, writers Bob Ellis and Anne Brooksbank bought the venue, known as the Nimrod Street Theatre, and they renamed it the Stables. Ten years later, it was on the market again, and Griffin was issued with a notice of eviction. Let's meet Bill Eggerking, who was Griffin's administrator in 1985 and along with Penny Cook helped mount the Save the Theatre campaign, and Peter Kingston, who was the artistic director of Griffin Theatre Company at this time of turmoil. Welcome. The inaugural. The inaugural artistic director. director. Welcome both to the Griffin 50th Anniversary Podcast Series. Thank you. G'day. So are you surprised that it's made it this far? No, not at all. I mean, I think Griffin has always been a group of many tribes and uh, one tribe was going to keep going however it happened. That's my understanding of it. Yeah, and I think it's such a brilliant space and while ever the space is there, performers will fill it if we can get in. If we can pay the rent, mm. if there's a friendly landlord. And the Griffin <laughs> has been kept going really by the kindness of real estate, which is a strange thing to say in Sydney where, you know, as you say, it's such an expensive piece of land. Well, we're going to hear all about the um, SBW Foundation, which really bought it and kept it going. But I'd love to hear about your earliest association with Griffin. Can you tell us, Peter? Okay. I met Robert Menzies, the actor on a bus, Mm -hmm. and eventually became the ticket seller for the first ever production by this fledgling group of actors who were just a cooperative without a name. Out of that production, they made $1,000. The actors all decided to put it into another production and they invited me to direct it. I had no idea what to do and I found two new Australian plays and we put them on at the Orange Doors in Paddington, Sydney. They were uh, written by John Stone, an actor who was trying his hand at playwriting. And from that production... Bob Ellis and Anne Brooksbank mm-hmm. came and said, this is kind of very interesting what they're doing because it was it was way out there. It wasn't, we weren't doing the normal rep. It wasn't that common to be doing the work we were doing. So they said, um, you guys need a home. And um, they bought the, the Stables Theatre, or they bought the Stables Theatre and asked us, to, uh, to work there. Mm-hmm. Bill, what about you? What, what were your uh, early in, associations yes, with Griffin? I came in a few years after that, um, which Peter has described. I came in as an actor. I think the first play I was in was a Steve Spears play um, in 82. From there, we were sort of invited to go to the Singapore Arts Festival, if you remember that. 
because the play was very successful. So Penny and I essentially became fairly close in trying to make that happen. It didn't happen. And from there, I was into the company, mm-hmm. essentially. And so, I mean, in those early days, there was a great deal of uncertainty about who owned the building, whether it was going to remain a theatre, whether it was going to remain the home of Griffin. That only really started coming up in 85. Mm. Um, before that, I mean, there was the annual fight with Brooks Bank and Ellis over uh, theatre and public halls requirements, the condition of the theatre, or we can't go on like this, etc., etc. The rent's going up next week or next month. But it was a fairly common cycle of events for those first four or five years. Never had a sense that Brooks Bank and Ellis wanted to get out, and there was certainly no one banging on the door to say, get out, we want to put some apartments here. So, yeah, it, that was f- a fairly known quantity. In the beginning, but then in 1985, as Well, I from understand. 85, that's yes. right. That's yeah. when... Well, let's cut to yeah. that chase. And so, Peter, you were named Artistic Director in October 85. At that time, I think it was owned by Ellison Brooksbank, and they agreed to sell it, is that right? And then, uh, as I understand it, withdrew it from auction at the last minute. That's right, yes. Bob is a very, um, I, I can't think of the word, but... Um, a fairly free-flowing mind that would change with his emotions. And it was probably around about the June of that year he said, that's it, you know, we're going to sell this up. He just had a new child or whatever had happened. They wanted the money. And at that point he said, we're going to throw you out. So then there was a probably about a three or four-month period where this jousting was happening between Anne and Bob and ourselves. Then they finally said, we're putting it on the market. It wasn't so much they wanted to send, sell to developers – but it was more to, I don't know what what the game was at the time, but yes, they did agree to go to auction. And in the meantime, Penny and I essentially had set up this thing called Save the Stables, which the media was wonderful to us, ABC Radio, The Herald. So we got a lot of information out there because we had no way of getting the money, obviously. And it was really just to um, draw attention to the plight of this little theatre. And so we did everything from, like, there was the King's Cross Beach Party, if you remember that. <laughs> um, and it was just those sort of wonderful sort of events that uh, we staged. It was almost as though adversity kind of brought people together in yeah. such a creative and wonderful way and bonds were formed that were kind of lifelong. Uh, and I think the other part of this too is the figure of Penny Cook, the actor, mm. who having graduated from NIDA as a you know promising young juvenile actress, um, <laughs> found her way into uh, television stardom. And her visibility, her energy and drive and commitment to what we were doing. Do you know, like mm. like Bill Egger King and Penny Cook kind of wouldn't have worked unless Penny Cook was Penny Cook. Yeah, and she opened right. doors, she had contacts, but she was incredibly dynamic, do you know? Mm. But I have to also remember Penny got Channel 7 to um, uh, sponsor the company for two years purely because of her involvement with Channel 7. So one year it was 80,000 bucks. It was in 84, 83, I think. It was just on the basis we went and saw, I can't remember the guy's name. Penny said, here it is. We wrote him a letter, sent us $80,000 and the same for the next year. I mean, by virtue of Penny's insistence, Mm. that happened. It was extraordinary. But then enter Dr. Rodney Seaborn. Mm. And I understand you took the first call from him. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you remember about that? Well, we were just, because we used to, operate the whole theatre out of the foyer of the stables downstairs. And on the one telephone we had for everything, uh, this is before faxes, 
Agnes Kaur from a gentleman saying, we've seen your thing on the in the Herald over the weekend and I was wondering if you'd like to come down and talk to me. I think I might like to buy the theatre. And it was just, really, it was just like that. So I hung up, I went, someone's pulling, playing a joke on us. And Penn was there and we just started going crazy over it. So I think within a day or so, we'd gone down to see Rod. We had no idea who he was because part of this process, we'd been approached by the most extraordinarily strange King's Cross types, you know, the underworld, you know, da-da-da-da-da, because we'd been there for so long. Mm. And we didn't know what we were going to find with Rodney. So we went down there and we went to this most gracious apartment, this five-bedroom apartment uh, in Darlinghurst. He had, was dressed beautifully in a suit, this most gorgeous, that was wonderful stuff. Mm. And he poured us a cup of tea and he said, I'd like to buy the theatre. You know, I told my mother I had wanted three things in this life, a hospital, a hotel, I've got those and I need a theatre. Isn't that wonderful? It was as simple as that. Because I know he had bought the Allenbrook Private That's Psychiatric right. Hospital in Mossman and the Wattle Hotel on Oxford Street and he <laughs> agreed to purchase the stables. Why the stables? Well, he at the time said he was greatly fond of the work that Nimrod had done there and I think that's as far as it goes. I mean, he was a great local character. I mean, he'd always been placed himself around Darlinghurst King's Cross. He'd had other holdings around there as well. I can't answer that question any more than that. Mm. He had a desire for it and he wanted to do good. Yes, and he was a very successful Sydney psychiatrist, so he obviously had the means. He certainly did have the means, and um, he also had a very faithful band of people around him. So like all the people from Allenbrook, the um, the matron, Joan Birch, Joan Birch, she was a, a nurse for 50 years. She was running the foundation for him. There was Nan Singh. Do you remember? Nan, she was 86 <laughs> at the time with spidery little hands. She was the social secretary. She became the social secretary. Sorry, these are the people that were around Rodney and these are the, and they'd been so loyal to him over the years. That's, that's the guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I understand, it was Lillian Haller who suggested to Dr Seaborn to set up a charitable foundation for the benefit of Australian theatre and the performing arts. And so the SBW Foundation was Yes, I mean, born. that's probably a little, um, it's probably a little more nuanced than that, mm-hmm. given the nature of Griffin and its board and its, you know, territoriality with the Stables Theatre, there were certainly various options thrown around at the time. Yes, I think everyone agreed a foundation was what mm. was required. Do you know why it was called SBW? Yes, Seaborn, Broughton, Walford. So Rodney is the... Is, is, is the Seaborn. Is, is the lead. The Seaborn. Mm. Leslie Walford is his cousin. Yeah, they were all cousins, mm. yeah. And... Peter Broughton. Peter Broughton. Broughton. He was a, uh, in the eastern suburbs doctor. Mm. Right. So there were three. That was the, why the SBW. The gang of three. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And even you've seen their logo, haven't you, Angela? It's this little spidery SBW with the um, Southern Cross on it. Uh-huh. That was designed by Nan Singh in her own spidery handwriting. And so, Peter, you're, you're the uh, artistic director at this time. Was there much of an appetite for Australian plays at that time? <laughs> there was amongst ourselves. <laughs> um, I'd been associated with the company since its inauguration and had directed sort of annually up until this time. I was in Perth directing for the um, the, uh, the State Theatre Company over there and I got a phone call from Penny. Would I be interested in applying for the job? I got a phone call from Penny. You got the job. <laughs> I turned up on my first day <laughs> and 
to the office that we, we were discussing yeah. earlier. And Penny and Bill sat me down and said, look, we've got some news. We actually have an office, but we don't have a theatre. <laughs> but don't worry, we're going to meet this donor. We're going to go and have a meeting with this guy later today or later in the week. And I looked around and I thought, okay, well, I'll just take this pile of plays and I'll go down to the Tropicana and not just sit in a corner and read. <laughs> and um, amongst the plays was Morning Sacrifice, which we produced the following year. Out of our practice up until then, I think we'd kind of made a, a commitment amongst ourselves to, to nurturing and developing new writers or mm. writers and really bringing the Australian repertoire to to the fore. At the time, Currency Press were kind of major players on the scene and they were publishing some of the work, you know, and so it was available to us and we were able to read plays by Dimfin Cusack and others and it was like, wow, this is stuff we've never heard of and this is the kind of... This is where we come from, do you know? It's not just Summer of the 17th Doll. And and so by the time I was appointed artistic director, either I or we had said, let's commit ourselves to the production of Australian work only. And that will be our kind of, if you like, USB. Mm -hmm. And so Griffin becomes the beneficiary of a $500,000 grant from no, SBW Foundation. the foundation was the beneficiary. Oh, sorry, That's I great. beg your yeah. pardon. Yes. So we essentially were offered a theatre renovator. So, I mean, it all happened very quickly. So I think the second or the final sale happened around about September of 86, I think. And by the end of 86, it was being rebuilt. So, well, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit, okay. if we could, about about the um, the fact that the building was up upgraded. I think the roof was raised and the floor was lowered. There that were, was at the end of eighty six, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So we did the inaugural season. We got it. We got in by the skin of our teeth. Um, That's right. I phoned Michael Gale and said because I'd met him at the Playwrights Conference, and I said, Michael, have you got a play? <laughs> We're looking for a play. We want to open in February. <laughs> and he said, oh, look, I've got something. It's only half written, though. It's in my, it's in my bottom drawer. I'll send it to you. And he sent me Acts 1 to 3 of Away. And I read it, and, and, and at the end of Act 3, it, there's a stage direction that says, the fairies stage a spectacular storm or something like that. And my heart was one. I thought, we've got to do this. We've especially got to do it in this little kind of handkerchief-shaped stage. So I said, Michael, we'll have it. And can you finish it, please? <laughs> and so we started work, the work of casting this glorious piece of work um, yeah, and getting it on for... I don't know, we opened early in the year. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have a theatre, we got a theatre. We nearly had a play, we got the start of the play, we finished mm -hmm. the play, we opened, and we had a spectacular success. Mm -hmm. Isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. But so tell me just a little bit more, When did the up, then when did the renovation to the theatre At the happen? end of that year. At the end yes. of that. And it was required by the theatre and public, public mm -hmm. halls people for compliance for mm -hmm. fire. So... One of the biggest things was this ruddy post that used to sit in, in the middle of the stage. Which, which wasn't a, which well, as a director wasn't a problem. No. It was a wonderful editing device. <laughs> um, but, but, but actually it, it, it was a structural problem. Yes, okay. Yeah, but so, so the roof was raised, yeah, so, the floor so was low. So put lowered. money into that. Mm. Um, and it was air-conditioned? Yes, eventually. Um, eventually. Remember that first opening night of Europe? And everyone came there thinking, oh, this is really great. We're going to have an air-conditioned theatre. So the air-conditioners were on the wall, but... 
it didn't work. Oh. And um, so I think you made the line, oh, they're sitting on a, you know, on a dock in Melbourne somewhere. And I think everyone accepted it because everyone was sweating profusely. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I must say, and incredibly, the New South Wales government found about $50,000 in the bottom drawer somewhere to supplement Rod's funds. Mm-hmm. And this is money that had been not given to Griffin previously. So the foundation started a bit of a role for, for Griffin. Mm-hmm. Bill, you mentioned the poll. I understand you had a terrific idea. Oh, we all had lots of ideas. But at the time, everyone was sort of selling bricks to support the building by a brick. So mine was, well, let's cut the post down and slice it into breadboards and uh, <laughs> do it that way. It didn't come to pass. I think it ended up in a skip in somewhere. Oh. And, um, but it was just I one of those things idea. at the time. It seemed like a good idea. <laughs> and so the renovation was completed, I think, in 1987 in time Correct. for the new season. About February, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the next play was, staged in the new, improved yes. stable well, the theatre? Well, it was Michael Gower's next play, which yeah. was called Europe, directed by uh, the wonderful Kerry Dwyer mm. with um, Gillian Jones oh, and Greg right. yes. Saunders. Greg Saunders, yeah. A gorgeous, wonderful piece of work. And um, it was a um, great critical and uh, yeah. commercial success. Mm-hmm. And so it was well received and the stables was now a lovely theatre to go and visit. <laughs> a lovelier Yeah. We have to remember that the original Nimrod Theatre and, you know, Arnie Nimi's kind of theatre companies and the ensemble, we'd we'd all been working in that space without air conditioning under pretty diabolical conditions in the summer months for years. So so this was a very meaningful upgrade and, and it made us feel very, like, secure or there, valued and kind of respected, you know? that there was all this kind of support around us mm. that sort of made it better for not only the audience but for the artists and the people who, who, who made and created the mm. theatre. Yeah. Because I think the lovely thing about the Griffin also, it wasn't trying to become a little Nimrod or a little Sydney theatre company. It actually had its own mm. personality and that's what it was happy to be, you know, this ragtag bunch of every, young kids, a lot of young different people. Grappling to get into the spotlight to learn, but also kind of to be discovered, do you know? Mm-hmm. And then when we started mixing more experienced and older actors with the kind of younger, the younger yeah. hungry people who were sort of in the foyer just going, come on, when are we going to work? When are we going to work? I mean, we were a collective, but the shadow side of all of that is the kind of unbounded expectation that there's an opportunity for me, which is energising, but it also can create conflict and challenges. Because you also have to remember, we weren't paying great wages. So we that weren't was, paying wages well, for a long time. <laughs> there, there was a, there was a, I think come 86, 87, there was a modest amount. But I think that was still the elephant in the room that Griffin was not able to afford uh, proper wages to its act, minimum wages to actors or staff there. So we we're all taking a cut of whatever was going around. But it was in that year that we sort of began to, we, we began the process of becoming a kind of a legitimate operation mm. who was paying the minimum equity wage. Yes. Well, the importance of the SBW Foundation, I guess, to to Griffin at the very beginning. Oh, highly important. In a nutshell, Rodney Seaborn's foundation enabled Griffin to thrive and survive rent-free in our home at the stables. It gave a certain certainty to the company and its ongoing um, accommodation, 
rather than having the, the six monthly battles with Ellison Brooks Bank. We paid outgoings on the building. Uh, the initial offer was for five years, which then became open-ended, as I understand. So that would have saved us, you know, quite tens of thousands of dollars to free up for programming. Um, I think that's also applied to a lot of other theatre companies around Sydney. I mean, Rod came in through the agency of Griffin and sort of got involved with the Elizabethan Theatre Trust, Ensemble, Belvoir, NIDA, doing a playwriting competition. I mean, it's the most extraordinary development from a man who he obviously knew what he wanted and it just flowered. It's extraordinary. Rodney Seaborn died in 2008. Neil Armfield called him one of the guardian angels of theatre in this country. Would you agree with that description? One of, one of them, yeah, sure. Yes, um, yeah. You he was certainly to, ours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to understand, Seaborn would come along with, I don't know how many people on an opening night and many other nights. You'd have these eastern suburbs types and northern suburbs types coming to this venue of angry young people and they were just loving it. You were watching these this mingling of tribes, and they were they were so generous and so. I know. And Rodney you know. Rodney found the work a little bit sweary and shouty, <laughs> but he adored it, and he adored being a part of it, and and it was just wonderful to have him mm. and 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 his kind of. Associates, his flock, yeah. his fans, come to us, and it was sort of a, one of those great things that theatre does. You have to remember also he, the social side of his foundation. They might have a thousand members, and half of those would buy tickets for a show. I mean, that's extraordinary in a theatre the size of the Griffin, or even Belvoir, to have a, a whole night sold out with happy people. Do you still have an interest in that theatre? Do you still go to see plays there? I haven't. Sorry, Peter. I haven't for some time. Yeah. And 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 and, I, and this morning I thought, Peter, come on. <laughs> it it feels to me. It it feels to me as though, for me, it was traumatic leaving. I left voluntarily, but it brought a kind of trauma, um, and as a decision in my life, it's one of the most fateful. It's a truly fateful decision that I, I made. I didn't know that. Hmm. Okay. And, 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 and there's regret and opportunity uh, in the decision to leave. Hmm. I, I, was, I was frankly exhausted. Um, as you can see from the programming, we were, we were following Penny's um, direction to have fun, but we were also following the direction to never close. And we were doing shows in the day, in the night, late night. On weekends. We never you know. stopped. And I was knackered, yeah. and I left, and it's been a great regret of mine. Yeah. I can only echo what Peter said. Same for me. I felt totally traumatised when I left there. In fact, I'd love to go back to the stables, and there's been a blockage. I don't know. It's sort of like felt like a slight shame that we never quite got together what we wanted to get together, or I, I can't explain it any better than that. But or regret. 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 Mm. You know, and, and uh, although we left this wonderful, pulsating, lively, exactly, I yeah. would think thing, you'd you look know? back with great pride I, and, and satisfaction. I, I do, and I'm sure you completely do. wonderful, absolutely proud of everything they're doing. But I sort of never go and visit the kids. Well, I think you need to change that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's been lovely to talk. Thank Thanks. you, and to you. <laughs> 
For more information, head to Griffin's website, griffintheatre.com.au. Thank you.